Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit Hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to another Real Conversation. I'm bringing back uh, someone that I enjoyed, you know, and I generally enjoy my time with him because I learn a lot uh, about what I don't know when it comes to energy. We're going to talk about oil and the energy transition. Uh, before I get into it with Mark, uh, Mark Gordon being, I wanted to just kind of contextualize this a little bit. I think most people know that we went from long energy, long commodities from 2020, middle of 2020, for a couple of years, for two years, and then we flipped in Q3 of last year. So I'm bearish on energy and oil, but that's a very short-term view. You know, when you look at our quad outlook for next year, you want to be buying it, you know, coming back to quad three, what we call stagflation. Uh, part of that is that energy prices, commodity prices in general will be rising again. So what I try to do with somebody who's far smarter than I'll ever be at this topic, I try to get smarter on the long-term, uh, what we call our long-term tail. So Mark Gordon, thank you for coming back. and. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the last talk, and I'm looking forward to this one. It's, uh, it's, it's the amount of work that you've done on this, and original work, by the way, I, I, I might add to most people when, like I see people, plenty of pundits on energy, right? I mean, they, they just grab, you know, what Goldman's saying over here, they grab what this person or this chart's saying over there. It's, it's rare, suffice to say, that somebody actually has a compendium of long-term, their own work within their own process, and comes up with like, dare I say, a passionate view that you have about this and how it, how it, how it, how it plays out. And, and, and maybe let's just get into that. We we're gonna use your uh, presentation so that we can guide people through kind of your long-term view. And um, maybe I'll just start with letting you tee off with that. All right, well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah. In our last conversation, I went through sort of my peak oil uh, theory. I'm not gonna redo it this time, but I think it's still relevant. Mm -hmm. And part of my passion comes from having sort of figured that out and thought it through uh, you know, in a manner that has me convinced. And so once I be became convinced on a peak oil supply, uh, that being a, a big issue, it forced me to think about the energy transition and think about what kind of transition makes the most sense. And so about a month ago, uh, Elon Musk had the Tesla Analyst Day, and the first 40 minutes of that was on his energy transition plan, and I listened to that, and I just thought to myself, this is really going to cause a huge problem for the United States if we follow his plan. And so I wanted to come on here, wow. I wanted to come on here and address that. <laughs> and, and, and what I want to say right off, though, is I have no issue with Tesla cars. I think they're, they're great. I think it's an amazing event, invention. I think he's you know, contributed massively to society, and, I, and I'm grateful that he's actually set us down that path. What I have an issue with is what he wants to do to the grid. Mm. And you know, I think it creates energy insecurity. And, and I think that we need to think through this energy transition plan now, because if we implement it when the supply crisis happens, uh, we're going to be you know, in a really you know, bad spot. 
So, so we're not like essentially we're not. You watch this. You you didn't tell him what to say. You're just this is your reaction. This is my reaction like, to what he said, which yeah. is interesting because like I I watched and listened and I had no reaction because I wouldn't know otherwise. <laughs> but it really is like it, it's you're almost like saying that if you're. You know, if you're not proactively preparing, you know, for his plan, that's one thing. Um, if you execute on his plan, that's that's like an existential thing. You're well, so what I'm saying is, for me, the energy transition is driven by an oil supply crisis. It's not driven by the climate crisis. Okay. So, so I see different you know, starting point. Different starting point, and I think that leads to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. So, what I want to do in this talk is go through the oil supply crisis as I see it. And I think we're exactly on track from where we left off the last time, three and a half years ago. Uh, I want to make sure people at least appreciate what I see. And then from there, I want to start talking about the energy transition and how we could, you know, come up with a plan that works. I have a very optimistic outlook now. Last time I talked to you, I didn't see a plan that worked. Now I see a plan that works. Oh, and I think that um, Elon Musk's plan will you know, be a disaster. So, you know, <laughs> that's... Put, put plainly, yeah. yeah, yeah put, to, to make everything, you know, clear, right? Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and I wanted to introduce you to my favorite product at Hedgeye, the Macro Show. Why is it my favorite product? Well, it's my show. I do that every morning. If you want to get ready for the market day, you want to contextualize all the data, you want to make good decisions, then this is what you should be watching. It's a repeatable process that you can deliberately study, measuring and mapping, time series to time series of data. So it's not going headline to headline and getting whipped around. It's actually being so much more dispassionate about it and making good decisions that are data driven. So we'd love to have you on our team. Come join us. Tune in weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern and on demand anytime. Go to hedgeye.com research to subscribe. Cool. So if we turn to page four, I'm just gonna do a recap on oil from our, our last talk a little over you know uh, three and a half years ago. So on the supply side, the situation is actually worse than I thought back then. U.S. oil production has stopped growing. I'm going to show a chart on that, but as I'm sure you're aware, shale has really you know, prevented a uh, an oil crisis in the last decade. Also, you know, since the last talk, we've used 120 billion barrels or over 7% of all oil produced. I mean, when you think about compounding uh, in a limited resource, you know, it becomes problematic when you put them together. And then the decrease in CapEx spend from industry is, is mind-boggling. We are not investing for, to maintain future oil production, and part of that is because in reaction to the energy transition. Mm -hmm. Now, why don't we recognize this? Uh, there's three main reasons. The first one is that um, the peak demand energy transition narrative has gone into overdrive. If I were just to give you an example, last week, we, we had the third largest draw in inventory since 1982, wow. and the oil price went down, right? So, so no, no one cares, right? <laughs> I mean, the EIA and the IEA have revised up demand in the last uh, you know, week. No one cares. We're all worried about this you know, recession that may or may not happen. Okay, so that's point one. Point two is governments have suppressed the oil price, and mm -hmm. I'm going to show that, but the, the, the sale from the SPR is unprecedented, and that in my opinion, and I'll explain why I think this, but, but, but that has prevented oil from being about 120 today. And then the last point is uh, demand is still not recovered from COVID, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna show that. Cool. So 
you know, on, on this next page, I'm, sh I'm showing where we were in 2019 when I talked with you last and where we are today. And the first thing I want you to focus on is OECD inventories, okay? They're down, that, these are commercial inventories, 110 million, but government inventories are down 318 million. So if you took those two together, you know, uh, and you added the, the drawn government inventories to the draw in commercial inventories, this, the adjusted commercial inventories would be down 15%, or they would be at the lowest level since 2003. Mm. And with that kind of inventory level, the lowest level you know, since 2003, if you just took the government, if we just hadn't you know, had the SPR release, uh, I would, we would have $120 oil. So they've definitely suppressed the oil price. Next, you know, you can see from this chart that not This is just in barrels. This is not like adjusted for anything. This is just... The, this, uh, the only adjustment I'm doing here is I'm taking the government inventories and I'm subtracting them from the commercial inventories. Yeah. So, so, so that's, that's, it's really <laughs> not very complicated, yeah. okay, <laughs> right? Yeah, and, and, and so also, if you look here, you can see there's been no growth in non-OPEC production, um, you know, OPEC productive capacity looks like it's declined, and what I mean by that is Nigeria and Angola, they're both offshore producers. Their production's falling, you know, quickly. They're both producing below quota. So, you know, we're not growing uh, non-OPEC production, and, and, and in my opinion, OPEC productive capacity is, has uh, declined. And then perhaps the sp most surprising thing on this page is, you know, with global GDP growing 15%, global demand has not grown, and we're gonna talk about that. But I mean, if demand had grown anywhere close to, to what it should have grown, we would have a crisis today. So I got a long duck. I'm going to go through a lot of this pretty quickly. Good. I mean, you know, page six, you can just see no U.S. production growth. Most oil you know, analysts would agree that if we hadn't had tight oil in America, we, we would have uh, had a crisis a decade ago. And it is not growing now. And this is a dramatic change. In our last talk, three and a half years ago, I had not thought it would be uh, this extreme. On the next page, uh, and this is a chart I used in my last um, presentation, it's James Schlesinger's chart. And let me just rem remind people, he was the Secretary of Energy, he was the Secretary of Defense, and he was the director of the CIA. So this is a pretty serious guy. He's showing, you know, uh, discoveries peaking in 1962 and production outpacing discoveries in 1981. You know, w we are not finding as much oil as, you know, we are using. This is not a sustainable path. I talked about peak oil supply in the last uh, um, presentation. It's worth uh, listening to again. Now, on page eight, this is just a slide I stole from Mike Rothman, who I think is a great analyst, um, but it just shows, you can see in 2014, uh, uh, global upstream CapEx was about $750 billion dollars, and uh, uh, you know, that was sort of maintenance CapEx, and we're not spending anywhere near that right now. So the cumulative underspend is about $3 trillion. It's a, <laughs> a lot of money. And, and so the question is, why is this underspend happening? Industry's gotten discipline, you know, uh, uh, that's part of it. But I mean, I would argue, especially in America, there's little reason to spend if the reserves aren't there. And this chart, page nine, uh, I'll explain in a second why I have it, but I mean, you can see in 1980, recent discoveries could add 30% to base production, whereas today that number is 2%. So much different today than 1980. Now, I put 1980 for a reason. The reason I picked it is that was when, you know, right around when Volcker jacked up interest rates. Mm -hmm. And so, 
Here's something that I think people don't think about. I feel like it would be a good PhD thesis for some ambitious uh, um, PhD candidate. Volcker sort of got lucky. And what I mean by that is that in the 1970s, the oil price went up 14x in nominal dollars. We found a whole bunch of oil, as delineated in the last page. All that oil came on in the 1980s, right? And so that drove down the oil price. The oil (laughs) price would have collapsed without Volcker raising interest rates. So, you know, I don't think we fully understood what was going on back then, and we need to rethink economics with oil as part of the history. But the reason I bring that, that up is because today it's extremely different, right? We don't, there's no reason for oil to fall on its own. And in fact, I think the oil price is going to go up and go up a lot. And so what's important is we don't want the Fed to make a mistake today. Mm-hmm. What we need to have happen is we need to have the oil price rise versus all other relative prices in society. And that's going to happen, and it's going to be inevitable. And the Fed needs to understand that the situation today is entirely different than when Volcker did it. So we need to let the oil price you know, go up. That's a really, uh, I mean, one, I didn't think about that before. I think I'm fairly well versed in, in the Fed, not in, not in the energy transition. But you, you, I always say, you know, when the Fed is tightening into a quad four slowdown, you know, what I'm really talking about is a, a slowdown in demand, which you alluded to, which is most people that are bullish on oil cyclically, they don't really have a view on demand, like at least with the quads and how we map it out explicitly. Um, but this point, you know, tightening into uh, a, a, an epic and ongoing and structural slowdown in supply, you know, so right. you have that, right? Like, so that would be a good example of for everyone that pays attention to my process where I wouldn't have known to say that unless you just incorporated that in my process, so thank you. It's an entirely different picture. Well, so I don't don't think, I have not seen anyone think about this point, and and making this point to you right now, I mean, my audience is the Fed. I hope hope they think about this, because, you know, if you think that you can solve the oil inflation problem by raising interest rates, you really, you know, you got another thing coming. I mean, it's not going to work, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to, we need to think about the energy transition. The Fed needs to think about the energy transition. I mean, the Fed tightening, when they were, I mean, at the hottest point of tightening, oil still went to 123. I mean, this is not, like when we're tightening at 50 basis points at a clip. I mean, it's not, you know, so yeah, they should entirely rethink this uh, with this component. Good job with that. All right. Next one, I mentioned the, 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 you know, uh, the government suppressing the oil price. I mean, this is really quite a remarkable <laughs> chart. I mean, I mean uh, you know, we, we're down 50% on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, I get it that you know, there's a war in between Ukraine and Russia. I also understand that the SPR is less important today because U.S. oil production, thank you to Shell, you know, is higher. Nevertheless, you know, I don't think we should be suppressing the oil price like this, just as we just discussed. And I think we should be saving these barrels for when we really need it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think this was a policy error. Now, on demand, which is the next page, you know, look at this. It's sort of remarkable, right? Since I was here last, global GDP has actually grown 15% uh, despite COVID. I mean, that's all the stimulus and everything, right? And normally, what happens is oil demand grows at about one-third of um, uh, GDP growth. So that would have been about 5 million barrels that we should have seen in growth. And so it hasn't grown. In fact, you know, uh, through 2022, it was was negative versus 2019. And so there's basically five million barrels of missing demand. And so where, where is that? And so some of that, I think, is going to come back. 
And some of that, I think, is lost permanently. So the lost permanently stuff is working from home. There has been a shift that has happened, and like we've you know lost it. And and this is not driven by electrification of BEVs. BEVs is about six hundred thousand uh, barrels a day of the five million. Mm. Now I do think that some of that five million is going to come back. I think air travel has been artificially suppressed. We're only now just beginning to reach new highs in China. I mean massive you know disaster over there with you know covid you know number 2 and covid number yeah. 3 or whatever but china is below trend so i do think there's about 2 and a half million barrels a day of demand catch up and that um, is enough to to tip us into a crisis mm. now uh, just saying the obvious, OPEC now controls the market. If shale's not growing, you know, uh, they can do what they want. Um, we'll see what they want to do, but it, but it appears that they want to higher oil price given the, you know, surprise cut we just saw. And, you know, we, to, to me, we look on track to drain inventories in the second half of this year, thanks to OPEC. And uh, we're in a new world now. I mean, they control the oil market. Now, this page 14 is a page just to remind you um, how high the oil price can go. In inflation-adjusted dollars, you know, tw uh, 2008 was at 195. And oil is extremely volatile. A very small move in demand or supply or inventories can, can, can uh, you know, send the oil price up. And I think we're likely to see above 195. Now, this page is very important to me because uh, people don't think this through. And I think the world GDP per capita is extremely interesting, right? I mean, no growth whatsoever until 1800. And then it just, you know, does a hockey stick, right? <laughs> I mean, so, so, so think about this. You know, Malthus came out with an essay on the principle of population in 1798, and everyone like, makes fun of him for getting it wrong, right? But he was actually right for all of history up until then. He was no idiot. When he came out with his theory, I mean, he basically said, you know, uh, human life is miserable, basically, and we're always, we're always you know, you know uh, re reaching the, the limit of, you know, starvation, right? And so... You just didn't know about the steam engine. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, so, you know, what's funny, right, is for me, it's very obvious that this was driven by hydrocarbons. First coal, and then oil, and, and then natural gas. But, like... Historians today, they've kind of like canceled oil because oil is evil, right? They, they don't know what to do with this, right? So they, they don't, I mean, like they don't have a good understanding of that it was hydrocarbons driving this. Yeah. And the reason I am bringing this up is because if we get the energy transition wrong, this is what we risk losing. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, that's the existential chart, at least one of them. <laughs> yeah, one of them. And, you know, on, on the next page, I just kind of like emphasize, you know, how important hydrocarbons are, which is, you know, think about it, you know, if you go, if you, if you, t if you take the 330 million Americans, you know, on average, each one's using two and a half gallons of oil a day and 35 uh, kilowatt hours of electricity a day, that's the equivalent, you know, of 45 humans. Uh, so, so it's almost like, you know, we have this, you know, stealth population working for us, you know, uh, that people aren't thinking about. I mean, 330 million people times 45 is a big number. Mm. Okay, so this is the end of the first section. Um, and the, the, the point to the first section is really to say, we're, we're going to have a supply crisis. We're very close to the supply crisis. Let's make sure we get the energy transition right. And, you know, 
Moving oil consumption to a grid solely powered by renewables makes for a very insecure energy future. This is Elon's plan. I mean, he wants to sell a lot of batteries. If we listen to him, we're going to have everything go BEV, and it's going to be on a grid powered by renewables, right? So now we're in a situation where we have an oil crisis. We might easily have an electricity crisis, mm-hmm. right? You get two crises at once. And so let me just well, ask you, uh, how many days do you think our society could survive in a blackout? Seven? Yeah. You know, I asked uh, a bunch of people this, and that's kind of like what people come up with. <laughs> Most people think seven days, right? Because you're not going to have sewage, because that's like electric pumps. You're not going to have water. You're not going to have refrigeration. I mean, I wouldn't know how to feed myself. Uh, I mean, I, and, and I, I live in a high-rise. I mean, like, I, I'm not going to take the elevator, right? I, I mean, it, it is a disaster. So we are playing with you know, uh, an energy transition that put, makes the grid unstable. It, 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 this does not you know, work, in my opinion. So the, the next section, the energy transition section. Is there an actual answer to that question? That was my answer. It was totally, totally a guess. Well, I mean, anyone's answer to that question is a guess. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, how long do you think it could last? I mean, I would be very surprised if we can make it two weeks. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm just thinking of experiences that, you know, I've actually had in life. You know, like yeah. where we had a blackout, like I didn't have power in my house, we had the generator fully loaded. Like, at what point are you, like, at wit's end at a bare minimum with your kids? Well, well, listen, I mean, yeah, when, when Hurricane Sandy hit, which yeah, was like exactly. a while That's, ago, I, I was, was living like, on the 57th floor. I walked up twice and I left the city. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it, it, like, <laughs> disaster. <laughs> you last two, two trips up the building. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. All right, so this is part two. Yeah, this is part two. And thank you, Elon, inspired by him. I think Tesla's amazing. I think your energy transition uh, plan's horrible. I mean, that's where I've come out with it. He, he calls it master plan part three. I mean, it sounds, sounds like he's working for Klaus Schwab or something. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? I, I mean... Yeah, I mean, anyway, yeah. I mean, well, what, 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 what amazes me about uh, Elon, right, is he, he buys Twitter. He makes fun of the liberals, left, right, and center, with, with the purchase. But then he gets them to do exactly what he wants. They are pawns in his scheme. This, the, the, the energy transition tra- uh, uh, plan that they have put into uh, place is what Elon Musk wants. So my main points of contention. First one is he thinks we should have an all-renewables transition plan. Mm. Remember, he wants to sell batteries. And I think that's way too risky. I think we should have multiple transition paths just to like, you know, make sure that you know, we're not dependent on something that's inter- intermittent. Um, he argues that battery electric improves efficiency. I'm going to show you that it doesn't improve efficiency whatsoever, which is like a big statement, right? Mm. He talks about full cells. You mean when we talk about the hydrogen economy, and I'm going to demonstrate that the hydrogen economy is a superior way to have an energy transition than what uh, Elon's uh, advocating. He says there's no limits to resources. This one blows my mind. When I'm going to talk about dealing with energy transition with limited resources, and then in his plan, you know, as in most energy transition plans, it's CO2 avoidance that is paramount. And for me, it's energy security and prosperity that are paramount. And I think that that's what we should be, we should be focused on. And that is what is most important to Americans or people in the world. Interesting. And, and so on page 20, 
I'm actually giving his supporting arguments, right? I, mean, I want to make sure people fully, you know, kind of get some of the points he's making. So th this efficiency ratio, right? He basically what he's saying is, let's say a Tesla, you know, has 105 miles per gallon e miles per gallon equivalent, and you know, a regular, you know, ICE that's internal combustion engine, regular gasoline car, you know, is you know, has 24 miles per gallon. So he's saying it's 4.8 times more efficient. I want you to remember this because I'm going to show you that this ratio is nonsense, okay? And then full cells, what he is showing here is his main argument why the hydrogen economy will not work. And, you know, it's a pretty compelling argument. You start off with electricity, you do electrolysis, so you lose, you know, 20%, and then you do the fuel cell, so you lose another, another 40%, so you're 48% you're efficient. These are the main arguments, you know, for uh, against a, a hydrogen economy and, and you know, for a BEV uh, economy. So let, let's think of through the the efficiency. I'm not. I'm going to think through the efficiency by just talking about natural gas for a second, and I'm going to compare natural gas to, to power a battery electric vehicle, or natural gas to power a fuel cell electric vehicle, or natural gas to power a compressed natural gas vehicle. So. That's the fair way to compare it when you want to think about efficiency. You've got to start with the hydrocarbon and end with what the output is. And so the reason you have to do it this way is in the battery electric vehicle case, the inefficiencies in the combined cycle turbine. It's only 45% efficient. The rest of it's heat that's lost in the atmosphere. Then there's a little bit of inefficiency in the distribution. And then I say AC-DC uh, efficiency here, 90% efficient. This is going to irritate Tesla, uh, Tesla owners, right? Because they're like, oh, my car's super efficient. But what this is, is, is the power from the grid comes in AC, and then you got to convert it to DC. And in that process, you lose about 10% of the, of the uh, energy. Yep. Um, I actually think it's a little more. I was trying to be conservative here. But what I will point out is that if you supercharge the car, that 90% goes to 80%. Because when you supercharge the car, you lose even more uh, energy in heat, right? And people don't fully appreciate that because when you supercharge a car, you're doing it through a charger, which is DC to DC. And so the actual loss in the Tesla is only about 10%, but the charger loses another 10%, right? So, so uh, I'm, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here, and I only have 90% efficient, but I really should have 80% efficient, okay? Hmm. Now, if you're going to do a hydrogen fuel cell, right, uh, reformation is surprisingly efficient. Why is that? It's because the heat is used to separate the hydrogen molecule from the uh, 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 carbon, right? So, so heat is used in this process, whereas in combustion, the heat's just wasted, okay? And so you can see you know, how fuel cell vehicles end up being a little bit more efficient, and then natural gas, you know, sort of all in line. So all of these are about equally efficient, but on the next page, they all have dramatically different miles per gallon E, right? Mm -hmm. So this is telling you that that mile per gallon E ratio is, is, is meaningless, right? Uh, uh, the Honda Civic natural gas vehicle is probably the cheapest vehicle to fuel. Why? Because natural gas is so cheap, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the, the Teslas, you know, they're all about equal because electricity is so expensive, right? So, so the point I am making here is that when Musk has that efficiency ratio, everyone intuitively knows that it's cheaper to fuel a Tesla, 
But the reason it's cheaper to fuel a Tesla is because a Tesla runs on natural gas and coal, and you're comparing it to an internal combustion car that runs on oil. Mm -hmm. And oil is a lot more expensive than having a natural gas coal car. So that's where the savings comes in, but it's not an improvement in efficiency. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually going to just um, jump forward quickly to page 40 um, to, to really drive this point home. Um, and, and, and the title of this page is Electricity is Expensive. And, and, and people do not appreciate how expensive electricity is, right? I mean, here, China, eight cents a kilowatt hour, US, 18, Europe, 40. When you convert that to an oil equivalency basis, we're talking, you know, in Europe, we're $680 a barrel. Holy shit. Right. So, so this is my point that, that you know, the, the mile per gallon E doesn't make, isn't important because a Tesla better have higher mile per gallon E because it's being driven off of, off of this. Mm. The savings for a Tesla or for a fuel cell vehicle comes from using coal and natural gas. Mm. Okay, so I've obviously made it clear that I think we're going to have an energy crisis. And, you know, so we're going to need to sort of save oil in a hurry, is, is, you know, the IEA put out a book called Saving Oil in a Hurry. And uh, um, I, for a second, want to put aside global warming and think about what we could do to save oil in a, in a hurry. And so now I'm back on page 24 in, in, in the natural gas section. And, and the way you save oil in a hurry is you roll out hydrogen produced from natural gas because that is okay. that that is relatively easy to do compared to all other things it's it's much easier to do than expanding the grid and we can do that in america because we have the resource right now i mean there's some caveats the marcellus isn't growing but hey alaska's got a lot of natural gas canada our homeland's got a lot of natural gas you can go find natural gas in the gulf of mexico we can do this and if we do this we can free up oil production you know, that is uh, being used in America and send it elsewhere to mitigate an oil crisis, right? Mm -hmm. And what, the way we could do this, the way we should do this, in my opinion, is through a decentralized production of hydrogen. That way, you know, you lower the distribution costs of the hydrogen, and you can do it through a process called seams, steam CO2 reforming. And I'm getting a little technical here, but for a reason. Um, that, that process uses electricity to create the heat to reform the hydrogen, as opposed to uh, using natural gas, which is combusted, mm -hmm. right? To, to, so, so there's no pollutants that are um, um, created from that process to put in the atmosphere. So what if we had a transition that was driven by natural gas to hydrogen, this would be very similar to what we did with our power grid, when in 2005, 50% of the power grid was coal, and today it's like 23%. So that transition, you know, lowered our carbon emissions, made America a cleaner place. This transition, using natural gas, which I know is not considered, you know, politically correct right now, but if we, if we, we'll come to the global warming arguments towards the end. But I mean, uh, uh, if we did this, we would actually clean our environment. Um, so that's quite compelling, and we would, in the process, save the world from an oil crisis. Hi, Robert McGordy here, director of subscriber development at Hedgeye. Join our entire research analyst team live before the market opens for deep dive investing analysis, our favorite stock ideas, and our risk manager in chief, Keith McCullough's macro overlay. Our team of 40 plus equity analysts discuss key market developments, trends, and our high conviction long and short investing ideas. 
you will not get this granular level of insight anywhere else. A video replay, audio version, and analyst summary notes from the call are available shortly after each live show to ensure you don't miss anything. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. And tune in live to the call weekdays at 7.45 a.m. Eastern. Enjoy the rest of this episode. What would be the first pushback that, that somebody would say on, on just... This know, plan? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to conclude with that. But the first pushback would be that by using natural gas, you know, it goes into the whole sort of ideology of climate change being more important than human prosperity. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. okay. But so, the science, like, that you won't get pushback on that. No, we can do this. We, we can do this. We do not have the political will to do this, right? And we actually, you know, the Europeans are the ones that have pushed the renewables idea, right? They don't have any natural resources. Like, what else are they going to do? They're sitting there. They're sitting there. They're sitting there. The North Sea is, like, plummeting production, right? So they're pushing it, and, and they want us to copy them. I mean, like... That's asinine, right? I, I mean, uh, we have a resource, and, and our resource can actually, you know, save the world from the oil crisis that I, I see coming. Now, for, for completion's sake, on the next page, flaring and RNG, this steam CO2 reforming process that I, I was talking about, it could be used to capture all flared gas, and the reason, and turn that into hydrogen, the, the reason that is is because it's high temperature and it has a long residency time, so it can take the natural gas uh, from, from flaring. It can also take all the input gas to renewable natural gas, RNG, which is basically landfill gas, wastewater gas, manure gas, all this type of stuff. <laughs> and and um, for me, this makes a lot more sense because right now there, there's this weird subsidy, you know, uh, program out there by the government where they're paying people like you know $18 an MCF to capture this gas when the natural gas price is $2 an MCF. We could run it all through this process, much more efficient, and you know, create hydrogen. So you know, uh, uh, an improvement in efficiency. Now let's talk about renewables because that's the Elon Musk plan. That is the European plan, and that plan is really, you know, in my opinion, um, foolhardy. So on page 27, this graph shows the economic justification for why we're all racing towards renewables. And it's basically, hey, look at these costs. They've fallen so much. We love renewables, right? Now, what this doesn't show is the issue with curtailment. And so on the next page, I calculate, once you take into account curtailment and, and, and storage, I, I should have said the issue with intermittency. So intermittency, you have to solve intermittency of renewables. The way you solve it is through curtailment or through storage, okay? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I was, now I'm trying to be more clear. But anyway, um, so once you take into account curtailment, and Elon Musk, he helps me out because he, gives, he has a white, uh, a white paper um, on, on uh, the, his energy transition plan. In his white paper, he says that he's going to curtail uh, renewables by 32%. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's crazy. Let's talk about inefficiency. This is the inefficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So you curtail by 32%. So, that, so that's the 0 0.68 you know, division there. And people will have to sit down and do this math on their own, but it's not very complicated. And then you got to take into account the cost of storage. And storage is really expensive. So basically, once you take into account curtailment and storage, renewables go from the lowest cost of, of uh, electricity to one of the highest. 
Well, yeah. And, 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 and sort of on the next page, you can sort of intuitively see that, right? We have increasing electricity prices in America. Why? We, we've moved from coal to natural gas. We have gone from the higher cost source of electricity <laughs> to the lower uh, cost source of electricity, right? But, but when you add renewables to the grid, what happens is you now have to curtail your natural gas plant. You can't not curtail something, right? And if you curtail your natural gas plant, well, then what happens? I mean, like the marginal return of capital, like you know, goes down, and you know they 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 need a higher power price to make the whole thing work. So the problem with renewables is just like you know they make the grid unstable, which was goes back to my like initial point. You really want to like transition, you know, in the middle of an oil crisis to, to a, you know a situation that's now going to make your grid unstable. I mean, it, it's sort of it's sort of crazy in my opinion. Um, so on page thirty. Basically, I, 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 this is where the master plan, you know, the, the uh, I don't know if it's the Elon Musk or, or, or uh, Klaus Schwab master plan, but this is where the master plan fails, okay? The, it fails because you have 32% curtailment in the portfolio, and then how about this irony? In Elon Musk's master plan, he's using hydrogen storage to balance his grid, you know, the full cell process. And so, you know, that just tells you that, 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 you know, the, the, the storage is expensive, right? Yeah. And, and, and the fact that you're curtailing 32%, you would curtail 0% if storage were cheap, right? But, you know, this is the only, you know, way he sees on doing it. So now let's just talk about efficiency of a renewable grid. You know, here is the, 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 the full cell thing at the top there, you know, 46%. Renewables, you got the curtailment, then you have grid storage, which is, you know, 92% efficient, um, and, and then you have that ACDC conversion. Now, the, the efficiency here when I do this, I'm trying to be honest, right, is a little bit better, but the cost is, is, is way more. Yep. So, so uh, on page 32, here's the surprising conclusion. Hydrogen saves renewables. Because if we have renewables and we run it all through an electrolyzer, we do not ruin the grid. So if you want to, like, you know, for whatever policy reason, roll out as much renewables as possible, you should be running it through an electrolyzer. We're not going to have blackouts. We're not going to have the governor of California you know, basically, you know, asking people not to charge their BEVs, which, you know, just, just happened during a blackout, right? I mean, I mean, so, I mean, that whole thing makes no sense. Hmm. All right. So, uh, two other paths to producing hydrogen. W one is nuclear. For the life of me, I don't understand why people hate nuclear. It just makes no sense to me. To me, this is the smartest thing that we can do. This is the ultimate end game. Um, you know, for me, there's no sustainable future without a widespread nuclear renaissance. But we, what we want to do is roll out these small modular reactors, which are basically, you know, uh, about a third the size of a traditional plant. You can, you know, build them in a factory. You get, you know. Uh, large-scale, low-cost, rapid rollout. I mean, other countries are ahead of us in this. China and Russia are ahead of us in this. We're only now just beginning to catch up. We need to do it. But let me point out something very interesting, right? Nuclear is very inefficient insofar as it only uses, the electricity is only 35% of, of the energy that, that goes into it. There's all this excess heat that's produced in nuclear, right? 65% uh, of the energy in is lost in, in that heat. That heat can be used 
to make hydrogen to the reformation process that we talked about before. You can have, you can have um, uh, high temperature electrolysis or you can have an even more you know, uh, uh, nuclear specific you know, program you know, using thermal chemical production. So I think this is what we have to do. I only have one page in this. You, know, you can tell I'm trying to be you know, uh, terse, uh, maybe not, but um, anyway. Okay, and then the last potential path is through waste. And waste makes a lot of sense uh, for, for producing hydrogen. Um, if you run it through the reformation process and you have no combustion, you can make you know, hydrogen to power fuel cell vehicles and you can do this in a way that cleans the environment. Wow. I mean, right now, most waste to produce electricity is burned. I mean, think about it. Do you really want to be burning garbage? I mean, like, you, like, you, know, you put all these toxins into the atmosphere. I mean, yeah, there's filters, and we're trying to control it, and there's minimum levels. But if you, you go the hydrogen route here, no combustion, a much more efficient way of handling you know, uh, garbage. And on the next page, uh, it can have a real material impact, right? Uh, all the municipal solid waste in the world if it were converted to hydrogen, uh, would would actually uh, uh, offset 10% of oil supply. Wow! And if we added in agricultural waste, you'd be at 25% oil supply. But perhaps, and, and and this is like a cheap, relatively cheap process, right? The input's free. Right? They, like they they want you to get rid of it. The landfills are filling up, and uh, we don't know where to put the garbage. I mean, like you know. Singapore is exported to Malaysia, you know, uh, uh, or, or um, uh, Wyoming sending it to Utah, New York City sending it to Rochester. Like we're moving garbage around all over the place. We could, we could, you know, turn it into fuel. I mean, like this is this is this is such a better way to um, use it. And the resource is local, right? So yeah. energy security, it's 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 right there. Now, on the, n the next page, you know, I'm now I'm kind of just poking fun at Musk's theoretical plan. But he, he, he talks about, well, we need sustainable aviation fuel. And for him, well, we can like, you know, take um, hydrogen generator from electrolysis. We can take you know, uh, uh, carbon uh, monoxide uh, generator from the electrolysis of, uh, of um, uh, carbon dioxide, and then run it through the Fischer-Trope process. We have jet fuel. I mean, nice. OK, it's creative. This works. Problem is, is only rich people are going to be flying because this fuel is so damn expensive if you do it this way. So this is like a, you know, uh, a fantasy in, in my opinion. Uh, the other main. So he flies. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, the guy. I, I, I got to admire him, right? I mean, he can make fun of Democrats with Twitter and get them to do what he wants. I mean, no wonder he has a smile on his face all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, 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 but, but uh, the, the, the point on this page, though, is we can actually make sustainable aviation fuel from garbage. That's amazing. Uh, and, and to me, that's the most logical way to do it. I mean, there's two main ways of doing it, forgetting his plan. One is through agricultural waste. The other one's through garbage. If you use agricultural waste, well, then you put pressure on the food supply. Mm -hmm. So that's not, a, that's not a really smart path. I mean, but garbage, I mean, it's like Back to the Future movie when you drop the banana peels in the machine. <laughs> like, that's how it would work, right? I love that. Okay. So energy efficiency, I talked about page 40. Let's just move to page 41. And, and 
for, for me, this is uh, sort of like the poetry, right? These two graphs come from the white paper that Musk put out after you know, his analyst day on the energy transition. And one shows the energy economy today. One shows his version of the energy economy in the, in the future. And you know, he argues, well, you know, the one today is super inefficient because of all this waste heat. And in his, he has this massive curtailment. This is the curtailment of renewables. We're just throwing away renewable power, right? So the hydrogen economy uses the waste heat and it doesn't, doesn't curtail you know, renewables. I mean, talk about, a, talk about a better system. Okay. Wow. Now, okay, most people aren't familiar with the hydrogen economy, so let me run through what it is. And it's not all that different than the BEV economy because you're talking about an electric car, right? The, the electricity comes from the hydrogen instead of coming from the grid. I mean, but it's an electric car, right? So hydrogen's biggest advantage is it doesn't depend upon the grid. I mean, that is just a huge advantage, right? Prudence dictates that we should have two energy systems. In a blackout, you want to be able to drive. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's clear, right? And, and, you know, now the grid needs an overhaul, right? I mean, like, you know, 70% of the grid is more than 25%, uh, 25 years old, right? We got the internet adding strain to it. We have crypto adding strain to it. We have BEVs adding strain to it. And you, you want to, like, you know, make it all renewables? I mean, more blackouts are coming. That is a problem. Okay, and, and then another point, which is sort of a smaller point, is that if you go to an all BEV economy, you got to build a fueling infrastructure for that, right? But all the cars sit there, or all the trucks sit there for a long time, you know, while they charge. So if you took all the trucks, right, they would, and you drive them around, you charge them up, but you, you need like eight times more real estate for the fueling stations just because the time to charge is so much greater. If you were to have a hydrogen economy, you just need to replicate the fueling infrastructure once. So better. And you know, the issue with the hydrogen economy is that we don't have the infrastructure there right now. But we can do this. The technology exists. If we get the infrastructure there, we will have a network effect and it will propel us in this direction. Now, Let's think about the hydrogen charging advantage, right? Which is, you know, you can fill a hydrogen car and at the same time you fill a gasoline car, same with the hydrogen truck. I mean, we're talking, you know, a gasoline car, five minutes, a hydrogen car, five minutes. You don't have to charge it in. But, you know, uh, you know some people might actually like charging their BEV overnight because they don't have to go to the gasoline station at all. And, if, you know, that, that works for some people. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a problem. As I said in the beginning, I don't have a problem with BEVs. I think that they're, they have a part in the future um, for sure. I mean, I think Tesla is, you know, it's great. But uh, it's going to be a mix. And, and, and I think that the advantage over time is the infrastructure is rolled out. It's going to go towards the, the, the fuel cell vehicle, you know, largely because of this. Now, if you think about it from a, a commercial you know, uh, vehicle perspective, like trucks, um, so Tesla now has its Class 8 truck, the Semi, right? That thing has you know, an 800 kilowatt battery, we think. I mean, I don't think he's given that specification, but as best I can figure it out, I mean, that makes sense. It's about that big. If you try to supercharge that truck, meaning if you try to charge it in about 45 minutes or something, you're talking you know, over a megawatt hour of power, which I, you know, I wrote here is 825 US homes. 
for, for one truck in, in an hour. I mean, actually using Tesla's math, it would be, be more like 1,200 homes in, in, in an hour, right? Right, for, for one truck. So, so, you know, like just, just so you know, right? Like right now, the, port, the ports in California, like the law is starting January 1, 2024, they, they have to have zero emission vehicles. So that means either hydrogen fuel cell vehicles or battery electric vehicles. There's no way we're gonna expand the grid, those ports, in California, is is going to is going to um, um, uh, be importing natural gas from Nevada? Is, is what's going to? Sorry, yeah. not natural gas, hydrogen from Nevada. Hydrogen, yeah. yeah, until they allow for hydrogen to produ be produced from natural gas. Okay. So another thing is, you know, uh, once we get to scale, the vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, are going to be a lot cheaper. Why? Because they have not scaled yet. Battery electric vehicles are. are about 70% metals for the battery, and, and you know, fuel cell vehicles, we're still in that process of scaling. So you know, uh, the point I'm making here also is a metal cost inflation will devastate BEVs. It's gonna you know, make, make this you know, difficult tra transition path. On page 46, let's just talk about some of the, how they're similar. Because they're both electric, they have that amazing acceleration. Everyone loves the Tesla acceleration. I mean, actually, a fuel cell uh, vehicle might have better acceleration than Tesla. Why? Because it's lighter. Um, so that's interesting. It has, they both have regenerative braking, so you get extra efficiency that way. No emissions, silent. And here's the best thing, right? All the progress Elon has made on the powertrain for these electric vehicles, I mean, it applies to the fuel cell vehicle. Yep. I mean, frankly, the smartest thing he could do, in my opinion, is to buy a fuel cell. I mean, company, or, or, uh, so that he could, you know, then have the best fuel cell vehicles. He could do both. He could hedge his bets. Now, how is a fuel cell vehicle better? Higher residual value. It doesn't deteriorate over time the way an electric vehicle does. Lower weight uh, means you can carry more. It means your tires last longer, and then it has better performance in the high and low temperatures. So all that's positive, and then you know. On the, you know, I just had this distribution disadvantage slide. It applies to both of them. Um, they're both, I mean, people don't think, but trans transmission and distribution costs for the grid are about equal to generation costs. I mean, like, the, like it's really hard to move electricity. It's also hard to move hydrogen. If we go to a modular production of hydrogen through natural gas, as I was advocating, um, we would have lower um, distribution costs because we would pipe it. So, uh, so, so there is a way to make the hydrogen economy cheaper if we, we, we go the modular cost. Now, quickly on limits to resources. Um, the first slide I think is funny because um, Musk, you know, he, he, he puts up his slide on, on the land required for, for solar and wind and you can't even see the dots on there. It's like, you know, <laughs> uh, 19 basis points and two basis points. Uh, so, so call it 20 basis points of, of global land area. But what he forgets to tell you is that you know, uh, global urban land area is 70 basis points, <laughs> right? And, and, and you gotta put the, the wind and the solar relatively close to the urban area because the transmission costs are so high. Like, you don't want to put them in, you know, I don't know, the middle of the desert, because running transmission lines is gonna be super expensive. Yeah. So, so that, that one's just silly, right? And then, uh, you know, his general argument is, we got all the resources we need. I mean, and, and like, you know, uh, I mean, might be true there's a lot of copper in the earth, but that the grade diminishes over, over time, right? And so here's, I just put a study from 
Dan Jurgen, which is on the web, anyone can take it, and Jurgen had, you know, it's t subtitled, Will a Looming Supply Gap Short Circuit the Energy Transition? I mean, Dan Jurgen's a pretty serious guy, and, you know, he has his, like, you know, bad scenario and an optimistic scenario, and in either way, you, you don't have enough uh, copper, right? <laughs> and then, you know, cobalt and, and, and lithium, uh, sorry, cobalt and nickel. Um, Musk implicitly recognizes that these are, are problems. And, and the reason he does that is because he's moved the, his, his battery chemistry off of uh, nickel cobalt uh, chemistry. He's moved to LFP, and, and that is a, uh, an inferior chemistry. Ba basically, it's heavier, and it takes longer to charge. And he's done that because he recognizes uh, supply constraints. So in this graph here, you know, he's got the you know, ones that are going to be LFP batteries, and then one, he's got the ones that are going to be high nickel batteries. I would say right now, everything high nickel could be a fuel cell, no problem. And, and part of the LFPs will be fuel cells. <laughs> so, so there's that. And then last part on the resources page, um, you got to remember, the hydrogen economy uses batteries. And uh, uh, the reason it uses batteries is because you know if you want if you want extra power to accelerate, you want extra power to pull a heavy load. Then the fuel cell is going to produce electricity. The battery is going to produce electricity, and you're going to charge the battery with your regenerative braking, etc. But the batteries used in the fuel cell economy is about a fifth the size as the batteries used in in a. Um, uh, BEV. Yep. So if you want to save resources, this is the way to do it. <laughs> and then when I look at new technologies out there, you know, on the come, there's something called atomic layer deposition. Uh, this technology is a way to cut the size of the resources used for batteries, electrolyzers, fuel cells, um, motors, hydrogen storage. So th this is actually really important, you know, uh, up and coming technology and, and it will make batteries cheaper, but it'll make the hydrogen economy cheaper. So that's another way to, you know, save resources. So now, now we're into the conclusion of, of uh, part of my, of my presentation. And, and, you know, just for a second, look at annual CO2 emissions on page 54, right? China's emissions are through the roof. We all know this because they are, you know, uh, using a lot of coal, and they're not stopping using coal, and then this is not going to change, nor should it change, because they deserve to have a higher standard of living. But what I want to point out is that the BEV car in China um, produces significantly more CO2 than a regular car because it's, it's coal-powered. Yep. Also, we saw, we saw the electricity prices before. Chinese electricity is really cheap, so this is another reason why they're going in that direction. This has got nothing to do with uh, you know, uh, uh, mitigating CO2. It, it, their, their policy is driven by energy security and prosperity, and that is what we should do too. I mean, like it, it, it seems entirely reasonable to me. Now, on the next page, I talk about CO2 saturation, right? Even if we drop emissions, we're still you know, putting CO2 into the atmosphere. And China is not going to drop emissions, nor is India, nor is most, most of the developing world. But the good news is that there's a CO2 saturation point. And, and I mean, according to Will Happer, who's a Princeton professor, really you know, eminent professor, I mean, he thinks we're actually there already. There's no debate that there's a CO2 saturation point. The only debate is if we're there or not. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so uh, what I think is I think peak oil supply is a bigger potential crisis than global warming, and that's what we have to focus on, and that is what we have to you know, work to mitigate, and we need to start now, because if we don't start now, if it hits us all at once, we're not going to have a good plan. Mm -hmm. 
So for me, page 54, here's, here's you know, now I'm being sort of cheeky, but my master plan redux, right? I mean, we want to pivot hard to hydrogen produced from natural gas in North America because that will free up our oil for the rest of the world and mitigate a supply crisis, okay? Um, and that, that is a temporary solution, but the permanent solution is, is, is you know, uh, uh, garbage, renewables, and nuclear. So, you know, on the garbage side, producing hydrogen from waste is pretty amazing because it can meaningfully clean the environment. Uh, on the renewable side, you want to accompany renewables with, with electrolysis in order to keep the grid balanced to avoid you know, uh, a broken grid, which literally could lead to societal collapse. And then on the, we got to accelerate nuclear. I mean, like, like that is clearly what we have to do. This is a multi-phased uh, uh, multi approach, unlike the Musk all renewables approach. Can we do this? I mean, America went from no LNG exports or minimal LNG exports, the world's largest uh, LNG exporter in six years. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty impressive. Also, we've added the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias of oil production through our shale. For, first, on the oil side, I mean, if you include natural gas liquids in there, and then on, on the natural gas side, we added another Saudi Arabia. So, yeah, yeah we, we can do it, is, is my opinion. Hi, Robert McGordy here, Director of Subscriber Development at Hedgeye. Hope you're enjoying our podcast. Start generating alpha with our suite of Sector Pro investing research products. Dive deep into retail, industrials, technology, and everything in between with exclusive access to the sharpest analysts and actionable ideas on Wall Street. Go to hedgeye.com forward slash research to subscribe. Enjoy the rest of this episode. National security. Uh, I'm almost done, Keith. I know you've been uh, letting me go here. Uh, um, so, so China controls the BEV transition. America can c control the, the hydrogen transition. America was the largest producer of coal, then oil, then natural gas. We should be the largest producer of hydrogen, in, in my opinion. And then finally, you know, a transition to a hydrogen economy is better. Um, why? Because it's cheaper. Why? Because, again, we're using lower cost uh, hydrocarbons uh, or, or renewables th th than we are using with oil. So it's a cheaper uh, uh, world, and it's a world where everybody um, is energy secure because it's all produced locally. So that's a lot, you know, a lot better than the current situation. And in the interim, we should move uh, to producing hydrogen from natural gas. And this is the controversial thing I'm saying, because people don't want to do this. But, but I mean, it is a potential solution to the energy crisis to produce hydrogen from natural gas. <laughs> Phenomenal. Really well done, man. I didn't know if you are going to get through this inside of the hour, but you did. I was rushing. <laughs> and if I, if I didn't ask any questions, you would have been done in 45 minutes or, or less. This is... Um, this is, this is what the world needs, right? I mean, the world needs people doing their own work. They need context. They need leadership. And it's like you provided all that. I mean, you have a solution. You're not just sitting here complaining or making fun of Musk. I mean, you're like, no, his plan's a, not a good plan. And if we, go, if we go with that plan, then we're screwed. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a major issue. You, you, you summarized the, the talk uh, coherently and, and succinctly. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see what – if it, we'll, maybe we'll go into overtime here if the questions are good. Uh, I just want to make sure – because again, the audience, what I love about Hedge Nation are just like just where we are in society in general. And, and you know, that is the, you know, Musk with Twitter, like you, you say, he's, he's using Twitter to, to trigger Dems to do what he actually wants. I mean, we use Twitter and we use the content platform to get people that are well-informed to ask questions. 
You know, like yeah, great. Like, they're, who's this guy Gordon? Like, you know, like what does he know? Like, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, people think they know everything, right? I mean, uh, but they, they can definitely ask questions. By the way, if you ha if you hadn't noticed, um, you know, Mark's presentation is just above the video player there, the entire presentation, um, and there's a lot of information in there. He went through it, you know, relatively quickly, but I thought professionally. Um, all right, uh, do, 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 do. let's see here. We want to make sure that we get. Uh, okay. Um, Bill from Connecticut. Um, why can we not get more nuclear power off the ground? The data suggests nuclear is clearly the way to go, right? Yeah, so I completely agree with them. I think the issue is political. Um, as I was saying, I think the way to do it is small modular uh, reactors because we can, yeah. can, can roll those out in scale. And also, also, as I said, I think that they should be combined with hydrogen production using that excess heat because then it becomes uh, more efficient. Frankly, I do not have a good answer why the world doesn't like nuclear. I mean, I think <laughs> that, like the, you know, the other, you know, the, the renewables transition all originates in Europe, and it's politically uh, driven, and I mean, it makes little sense to me. Okay. Um, this is another question, Daniel from Connecticut. Uh, thanks, Mark, and for the great presentation. Uh, do you agree or disagree with consensus on climate change, and how does this climate change factor into this thinking? Well, so, your presentations. Yeah. yeah, so so I could do a presentation, you know, as long as this on climate change. <laughs> yeah, I bet you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and I've thought about climate change quite a lot. I mean, when I was working at Soros, I thought George Soros was going to want my opinion on it. So I, like, sort of started working on it back then. I mean, um, probably good for him. He didn't want my opinion on it. Um, so, so I never offered it. Um, let me just say that uh, I think human flourishing and prosperity is a lot more important than climate change. That's what we need to focus on. We need to make sure that we do not endanger the standard of living we have now and the standard of living that the rest of the world wants. That should be the focal point. And, you know, if there is some mild climate change, we should adapt. I mean, there's no reason to be hysterical about it. We have adapted throughout human history. You know, in the medieval warm period and the Roman warm period, you know, the Earth was warmer. In fact, over 90% of the Earth's history has been warmer. So I think, I don't want to politicize this. I have my opinions on climate change. But the real important point is that we, we think about how to preserve what we have because we are living at a special time in history. You got Greta Thunberg out there complaining that we're going to like rob her future or whatever phrase it is she uses. She doesn't appreciate how good her present is. And our present right now is amazing. That graph that I had on, on human prosperity, yeah. I mean, it all started in 1800. And, and none of it, like, we, we just take it for granted. Um, I mean, w the, the risk is we lose that, and we don't want to lose that. And if we're not focused on this transition coming, coming that's going to be forced upon us from, you know, an oil supply crisis, we, we, we could lose it. And that's why I'm here, because I am worried about that. And, I mean, I, I, I have a solution. That's why I articulate it. So I'm optimistic. But what we need is we need people to follow the solution. America can lead the world by using our natural resource of natural gas and create the hydrogen transition, and then allow the rest of the world not to you know, uh, suffer from the oil crisis. Awesome, man. Uh, if I had more minutes on the clock, I'd keep going. But we're going to nail the 60-minute mark. And I thought you'd nailed that point, which is, again, let's just at least 
you got yourself here to present this. You did a ton of work on this. This is really, I'd say, it's your career's work. I mean, at this point, you know, our work is always an evolution. But this, at this point, according to Mark Gordon, this is where you're at. Yep. And I think that that, that you know, I, I'd love to see this give birth to like some not just consequential debate, but broadening debate. I mean, for me, the target audience is the Secretary of Energy and anyone running for the presidency, because this is what they need to think about, and we need to have a, a, a good energy transition strategy, because if we don't have that, you know, really, you know, like the situation will become problematic. I think just, just articulating an alternative plan, which you did to, to the Almighty in his own mind, his, his, his own plan, Musk. Um, yeah, that that's what that's what America's for. We, yeah, and, and the, 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 the Musk solution. I got a solution for him too. All he has to do is buy a fuel cell, you know, company, and he's ready to go. <laughs> yeah, well, he should, or he should uh, partner up with Mark Gordon. Yeah, there, and, there you go, and change his perspective. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it, Keith. And yep. thank you for your time. Uh, we very much appreciate it. He's Mark Gordon. If you want to look up his materials, I just showed you where to find it. Thank you. Don't forget to check out HedgeEye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at HedgeEye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by HedgeEye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedge is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.